Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. Hello, my name is Tina Schultz and I work with the Midwestern Public Health Training Center at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I am your host and producer for this series discussing rural health in the Midwest. Today we're going to talk with Emily Warnell and Bill Menner about what makes rural communities successful. Thanks for joining me. Dr. Emily Warnell is a researcher at Ball State University and studies demographics and population change in rural communities. She is affiliated with the Rural Policy Research Institute, also called RUPRI. The director of RUPRI, Keith Mueller, is here at the University of Iowa and is part of the planning group for this series. Emily tells us a bit about the Rural Wealth Framework and the work RUPRI does. Some of what she says goes against commonly held understandings. She has so much good stuff to share. I'm just going to let her talk. So one of the... um the biggest frameworks that we use is called the Comprehensive Rural Wealth Framework. And it is um, essentially um, kind of a a theory of of health, a theory of wealth in rural communities that looks at communities in a more comprehensive way. So um, there's eight different capitals, essentially, that it's looking at, eight different types of wealth that it's looking at. Um, so it includes human, um, which is, you know, we're all fairly familiar with that. It's the um, capabilities of a population, education, skills, talent, health status, things like that. Social capital, um, social social wealth is a stock of trust and relationships. Um, political is the influence, power, and goodwill. Cultural wealth is um, things like arts and architecture, religious beliefs, um, cultural traditions, things like that. Physical capital or or built capital, roads, infrastructure, things like that. Natural capital, what you would think of. Forests, air, water, um, financial capital. I think we all know what financial capital is, money. (laughs) And then intellectual capital is kind of, human knowledge and innovation that's in the society. And so um, often when you're thinking about a community, um, a particularly a rural community, um, just a couple of those things get thought about. So we generally think about financial capital. Sometimes we think about built capital. We often think about um, natural capital. But this framework is really saying we need to understand communities in a more comprehensive way. It's a very assets-based approach to understanding community wealth and community health um, rather than a a deficit. So a lot of rural communities, most rural communities, one might even argue, are going to have lower financial capital. Um, They're going to have worse infrastructure, older infrastructure. and, uh, and so you, if you look at it just in kind of those traditional ways, you see a, a big deficit in rural communities. But if you look at it more comprehensively, the human capital, the social capital, the 
cultural capital within rural communities that people utilize to um, help make their communities good places to live, but also can utilize in um, their own household or family well-being, then you understand um, rural communities much better. You can see the assets that you're able to build off of in rural communities to help them be more successful and sustainable long-term. Um, so that's the general um, kind of structure of the, the framework. And then we have um, the Center for State and Local Policy we've adapted that broader structure of the comprehensive rural wealth framework to actually apply it in communities. So it's great to have this framework and this theory, but then what does that actually mean in practice for communities? And so that's what we're calling the comprehensive community wealth approach. Um, and that's, a, that's more of a, a community-based um, approach to community and economic development. So right now, I mean, we're still kind of test piloting this here in Indiana. Um, so we have almost two dozen different counties in the state that are interested in working with us to try to build up a comprehensive approach to community and economic development. And really the way that we talk about it is the kind of typical economic development strategies are very um, kind of business attraction, retention and expansion types of activities. That's, that's what communities all over the country have been doing for decades because they say that's the, if you have jobs, people are going to move there in order to fill those jobs. So it's a very people follow jobs orientation. So the first thing that we really talk about um, using the comprehensive community wealth approach um, is just looking at the data that, that people don't actually follow jobs and they haven't since the 80s at least, um, but jobs follow people. So people decide where they want to live based on the quality of life, um, that they choose their individual community based on the assets of the community, the aspect of the community that's important to them. And then they're willing to commute to a job. So they might move to the Midwest. So for example, I'm from Oregon um, and I've, I've lived all over the country. I moved to the Midwest, I moved to Indiana because of my job. I chose the actual community that I live in based on the community characteristics that I was looking for. And then I would be willing to commute to my job. For me, that just happened to mean that I get to live in the community where I work, which is, which is great. But, um, if, you, if you're a community where you don't have that quality of life, where you don't have those characteristics that people are looking for, it doesn't matter how many businesses you open, people are gonna commute there if they're not gonna live there. Um, so that's really kind of the first part of this is flipping that script in terms of looking at the types of places that people want to live. Um, and that really um, means that creating a quality of life in your community is economic development because you have more people willing to live there. Once you have more people living there, you also have more, more um, jobs coming into those communities because that's where the people are. Um, so, so that's the first part of it. Um, and then we really look at, you know, these, these eight different types of capital are really important to be thinking about when we're thinking about quality of life. It is essentially quality of life. It's not just about 
financial and built capital, but it is about natural capital and human capital and cultural capital and creating that quality of life that people are really interested in being invested in in their communities. Um, so we have we have almost two dozen um, counties who are going through the process of figuring out um, what their assets are, kind of what their level of capital is and their level of health is um, in their community. Who needs to be at the table to be having those conversations? That's an incredibly important part of what we do is that you can have those leaders in the community who have always been there, um, who are, are going to have one certain perspective on their community and the comprehensive community wealth approach says that we need to have all areas of our community involved in these conversations, um, particularly those who have been disenfranchised from these conversations in the past. Um, the difficult thing with this is that it is not prescriptive. It is not a um, silver bullet solution. It's different in every single community that you go to because every single community that you go to is different. So the assets that you have to build off are different. The challenges that communities um, are experiencing are different. But the application of it in communities really started um, the very end of 2018. Um, and so we are definitely still on the front end. Um, we are still evaluating all of the projects that, that we're going through. Um, but, you know, the places that we have worked so far, um, so there's, there's been kind of two different pieces to this. The first is, a, is what we call the community development course. And that basically is kind of lets people know what this alternative script is. Um, introduces them to the framework, it introduces them to the different types of capital, it, um, it really asks them to, um, you know, get other folks involved in the conversation who aren't typically involved in the conversation, those sorts of things, really lays the groundwork for doing the next level, which is what we're just starting now. And that is, um, I hesitate to call it strategic planning because everybody does strategic planning and those suckers just go in a bookshelf in, in a room and nobody ever looks at them again. <laughs> um, and so what we're doing, um, it's called community-based action planning. Um, so it is kind of, it is kind of strategic planning, but it really is the focus is on action. So it's, we've got these these great plans that we really want to get to, what are the actual steps that we're going to be taking to get there? Um, and breaking them down into really manageable pieces so that we can actually get to this goal. So it's not just this big document that somebody puts on a shelf, but people have responsibilities and roles. Um, they have tasks and deadlines so that they can actually be meeting those goals and moving towards their ultimate, their bigger goals for the community. And it involves a community visioning kind of process that includes, you know, what does it mean to be a great community for the people who live there today, um, for everybody who lives there today? So what does, you know, what does it mean to be a good community for people who are experiencing financial insecurity and housing insecurity, right? Those are people who are often not at the table of trying to decide what the goal of the community is going to be. Um, what does it mean to be a good community if you are a new immigrant um, to the country? Because a lot of rural communities are experiencing 
really dramatic increases in immigration. Um, what does it mean to be a good community if you're a business owner? One of those kind of traditional things that we think about. Or if you are a single mom, or if you are a retired teacher, right? So all of these people are part of the fabric of our communities that really um, make a community what it is, but are also looking for a certain kind of quality of life and need to be involved in those conversations. So um, like I said, we're, we're really at, at the starting point of this. We're really excited about where it's going. Um, we've gotten great feedback from the communities who have gone through that first phase already, the community development course. Um, and even just, you know, we there's a, there's a county here in Indiana that has a really long history of um, tension between the county and the cities. Um, and there's been, legal action against each other and they, they just don't like each other. They don't get along. They haven't for a really long time. Um, and going through this process um, has helped people be able to talk to each other again, has helped people be more willing to be involved in leadership to where before they were just really wary of being involved in leadership. They're really excited to go on to this next level, the community-based action planning. Um, and they haven't been excited about anything in their, their county or their community for quite some time. So some of the early things that we're seeing have been really successful and we're excited about them, um, but it is definitely an ongoing learning process that we're in right now. One of the questions that we always have is how are you defining rural? I mean, that's literally a question on my comprehensive exams was how do you define rural? Um, in all quantitative sense, Muncie, which is where Ball State is, is not a rural community. Um, we've got uh, close to 70,000 people. It's declining, but certainly, um, you know, we are above that rural threshold. Um, but it is rural in a couple of, of important ways as well. Um, one, it has kind of a lot of the economic characteristics that a lot of rural communities are going through. Um, it's a former um, industrial town. Um, its population is decreasing very, very quickly. Um, it has a fairly um, narrow labor market. Um, there's, there's not a lot of diversity in the labor market. Um, and then I think really importantly, when you ask people, they identify as rural. Um, and I think that that's, um, an important aspect that we often miss when we're just looking at quantitative measures of what rural is, um, is that people do um, identify themselves as rural in this area where we might not ever do that. Um, so it, 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 life with health, it depends on how you're going to define it, whether or not it's a rural place. I was curious why Emily decided to become a rural sociologist. She shared that she had an informative experience working with domestic violence and sexual assault and seeing an urban-rural divide. You ask my, you know, 18-year-old self, and I would have been horrified. Because <laughs> I grew up rural Oregon, about a thousand people in my community when I lived there. Um, no stoplight, raised sheep. You know, it's a tiny little place. And I swore up and down that I was a big city girl. And um, and when I moved to the city, I really missed 
living in rural places. Um, but the big switch for me happened. Um, I was an advocate at a domestic violence and sexual assault service center um, in an urban place in Oregon. But a big part of our service area was rural. And through that experience, um, I really started to understand the different challenges and concerns that the women that we were that were in our service area um, who were rural, just how different their challenges and concerns were from our urban women. And really seeing um, the impact of the differential impact of policy around domestic violence and sexual assault when it's implemented in rural and urban places. And the level of disenfranchisement that rural women experienced in a very different way than urban women did. And so that was really starting, you know, really started to kind of turn my mind back to looking at, at rural places and kind of this rural urban difference. And then my, um, so my math, so I went back to school, my master's degrees in, is in public policy, actually in social policy with an emphasis in rural communities. So I was very interested in public policy implementation in rural places and how that's different than urban places. And then from there, really, um, you know, my PhD is in rural sociology. It just, it made sense to continue in that direction for me. My, I'm still very interested in policy. That is a lot of what I do, um, but I wanted to, to do a deeper dive into some of these issues of inequality and, um, and change in rural places. Wow. I loved talking with Emily. I was especially interested in asking her what the strengths of rural communities are, given that she initially thought she'd end up in a city. Listen to what she's got to say. You know, I think that there is, and I could say this through my own experience, but also more importantly, through the research that I do in rural communities, there is generally a very strong sense of pride in place that people have that I think is an asset that isn't tapped into nearly enough. Um, people by and large love where they live um, and the people are, are part of that. So, so often you hear when you're in a rural place, people are just saying, you know, I love being in a place where I know only neighbors and um, where my kids can walk down the street um, and, you know, and they're safe. And again, certainly this is not universally true, but I think that kind of rural culture, that rural sense of, of self and identity is a, a big strength in a lot of rural places. Um, and I think that our culture, American culture and our, and our history, so much of it is rural. Um, and it, it changes over time and it's, and it becomes urban as people migrate and as culture and art and those sorts of things migrate into, into urban spaces. But so much of it is really rooted in American rurality. Um, and I think that that's something to remember and to appreciate, you know, even as we continue to urbanize. So let's flip that now and hear what Emily sees as threats to rural communities. I think the biggest threat is a lack of recognition for the role that rural communities continue to play in 
our country's security, identity, future, and this disproportionate focus on the deficits of rural rather than recognizing the assets that it brings to our country. And really just a lack of recognition of how successful some rural places are. So, so much of, you know, we, we talk about these places that are declining in population and they're doing really bad economically, but so much of urban population gain over the last several decades has been reclassification from rural places that are doing really well. So the, the kind of frustrating thing is, is our rural places that are doing really well are no longer considered rural for obvious reasons, because we quantify, you know, the way that we quantify things, the population increase, they, they have to be considered micropolitan or even metropolitan. But then that means that rural, when we look at rural as kind of a, a rural America, this big thing, we are always going to be left with the quote unquote losers because the winners are doing so much better that more people want to move there and they're no longer rural. Um, and so that interplay between urban and rural, I think is really not recognized in the way that it needs to be. Um, there was a new, a new study out um, by Ken Johnson and Dan Lichter that just came out this last month. Um, and they, I believe they said it was from 1980. I could be wrong with the date. 1980 or 1990, that the entire growth of urban America is due to reclassification, not migration, which is massive if we think about it. And that's, that is not a story that gets told. That is a story of rural America doing super well. Um, and that's not, that's not what we usually say. Isn't that interesting about the reclassification of rural areas? The study Emily references looks at metropolitan reclassification from 1960 to 2017. Think about Waukee, North Liberty, Tiffin. Some of these towns are 10 times bigger than they were just 30 years ago. We'll link the article in the show notes if you're interested. And I knew that it was big. I knew that it was a big percentage, but I, I didn't realize it was that transformative, really. And that isn't a story we talk about. And it's just, it just tears me up inside that it's not something that we talk about. But it's not necessarily that people are picking up and moving. They are, they are but maybe even moving in the, in the other direction because we've got a lot of suburbia that, um, that you know, people are starting to move out of. Our biggest cities, um, our biggest metropolitan areas in the country are starting to see population decline for the first time in decades. Um, and that was happening even before COVID started. And there was, a, there was another report that came out, a survey um, report that came out fairly recently earlier this year that um, showed that over half of Americans, regardless of where they live now, want to live in a rural community or a small town. So if they had their choice of where they were to live, it would not be in an urban center. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the second 
for me, really important piece of, of what you were asking about um, kind of the biggest challenge for rural community or the biggest danger to rule is um, a lack of infrastructure that would allow people to choose to live in rural if that's where they wanted to live. And the big thing that I'm thinking of is um, particularly with COVID um, is a lack of universal access to broadband. Um, and I think a lot of folks living in urban places have no idea that there are millions of people in our country who do not have access to high-speed internet. And just what a devastating impact that can have, not just on individuals, but on the broader community, which can also have an impact on our society in general. So you, you know, educational opportunities, when you have something like COVID that's shutting things down, um, you have to be able to rely on the internet. And there are not insignificant numbers of kids who do not have the internet infrastructure and technology available to them to actually be active participants in their education. And primary and secondary education are things that are promised to us from our government as people who live in this country. And in 2020, there were millions of kids around the country who did not have access to primary and secondary education because they didn't have access to the internet. And that is not acceptable. Um, it's completely not okay. There is no family in the country who, if they had a choice, would say, I'm going to move to a rural place that doesn't have an access to the internet if they have school-aged children because the danger is just too high. And that doesn't even say anything about, um, you know, job opportunities, which absolutely rely on reliable, high-quality access to the internet. Um, that doesn't say anything about um, the ability to be civically engaged. Um, you know, one thing that that we've seen with COVID and um, and you know, state houses being shut down is that there have been satellites in other rural communities where people are there's a small group of people that they're able to get together and provide testimony um, to these online virtual events with their legislators um, to provide testimony and to hear what people are saying and um, to still be involved in the civic process in a way that they haven't been able to before if they live very far away from the capital. And so I can imagine we're going to be moving more in that direction, right? That things are going to be increasingly online, virtual events, so that people have more access to their government in general. But if there are people, because our infrastructure does not allow for it, who don't have access to the internet, then they are being even more disenfranchised from civic participation, from the democratic process, because of a lack of access to the technology that's needed to be involved in those processes. And because they're more likely to be rural, that means that rural is more likely to be continue to be disenfranchised from these, from the policy process, the, the democratic process. Um, and because of particularly that education piece and the civic engagement democratic process piece, 
it is absolutely vital to the health and well-being of our rural communities and our country for there to be universal access to broadband. And because it is in the national interest, I very strongly believe that it is something that the central government needs to, to make happen. Because we have tried to leave that up to the market and it has not only failed to provide universal access to broadband, but um, big leaders in the telecommunications industry have actually actively blocked state legislatures or who have blocked um, local state community cooperatives from organizing their own access to broadband through state legislatures. They have been they have been successfully able to lobby state legislatures to say no, you can't do that, which makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. They say we can't make money off of this and so we don't want anybody to make money off of this is essentially what it comes down to. Um, but the state big as states um, I think needs to recognize, that um, access to high quality, reliable internet is in the national interest and um, step in and help make that happen. And without it, I think rural communities are really, really going to struggle in the future. So we're gonna talk with Bill Menner now. Bill lives in Grinnell, Iowa. We'll hear a bit about Bill's background throughout the conversation, but he's worked in a variety of rural development kinds of jobs for many years. He has a rural consulting business and is the executive director of the Iowa Rural Health Association and of the Iowa Rural Development Council. As we were getting to know one another, I made a joke that he must know all the back roads across the state. He agreed that he indeed knows a lot of them. So I spent almost eight years as the state director of USDA Rural Development, which <laughs> is an agency within the US, USDA that focuses on rural infrastructure. It's like a big infrastructure bank for small towns, but also does community development and empowerment. And so I went around the state for almost eight years of uh, making awards, connecting dots. And so it's hundreds. When people say to me, I grew up in a small town in rural Iowa, you've probably never heard of it. My response is usually try me because I bet I have. And I bet that USDA rural development made some sort of an investment in that town, whether it was somebody's mortgage, whether it was a water or sewer system, a hospital or a small business loan, or maybe a wind turbine you see outside of town powering a farm operation. Bill clearly knows Iowa very well, but he's not from here. He actually grew up in Ohio, but he's been in Iowa for quite a while. I um, am a trailing spouse. Uh, my wife got a job teaching at Grinnell College in 1990. We moved here with a two-week-old, and we've been here ever since. Uh, she's still uh, on the faculty at Grinnell. Of the 30 years here, I have worked in Grinnell for about 10 of them. The rest of the time was spent commuting either to Cedar Falls or to Des Moines and back, but we've always been here. When we came here, uh, and I got my first Iowa driver's license. They asked me if I wanted the two-year license or the four-year. And they said, well, what's, I said, what's the difference? And they said, well, you know, do you want to have to come back and renew in two years or four years? And I said, 
give me the two-year license. We're not going to be here that long. And, you know, 30 years later, um, we're still here. And part of it was when we got here, I was, you know, the product of an urban environment. And I just assumed that there was nothing that was going to keep us here. And in fact, as it turned out, there was plenty. So it was a, it was a good move and we're, we're happy to have made it and happy to have been here the whole time. Once again, we're going to hear that whether or not a town is rural is a matter of perspective. I totally get this. When I was growing up, I would visit an aunt and uncle in Waverly, Iowa, and thought it was a huge town. There was a Walmart and a McDonald's and a bridge with a dam. They even had some stoplights. Waverly's population is about 10,000. So now after living in bigger cities for about half my life, I think Waverly's a small town. Well... Coming from big cities where I, I grew up in suburban Cleveland, Ohio, and I spent 10 years in Columbus, Ohio, um, when I came to Grinnell, I thought of myself as coming to a very small town. Uh, in fact, by Iowa standards, we're a mid-sized city. I, mean, I work with lots of communities that are under 1,000 in population, and when I say, well, I'm from Grinnell, they roll their eyes at me when I say it's a rural place. Uh, it is, it's truly a mid-sized city when we have 850 plus small town or towns in the state and a vast majority of them are a thousand or under. Um, Grinnell is a big, a big city. So, so I feel like I live in a rural, I have a rural experience when compared to urban places, but you know, by comparison, it's very different from uh, the couple places where I were this week was this week. It was in Brooklyn, Iowa, population 1500 or Montezuma population 1100. Uh, they're different small towns. When you go from a thousand to 9,000 have different capabilities and capacities and just they're, they're, they're different places. I think the biggest strengths of rural communities are the opportunities for individuals to make a difference. If you live in New York City, your ability to influence anything is minute. Um, whereas if you live in a town of 1,000 or 500 or 9,000 where I live, um, you have the ability to make a difference, whether it's running for an office or serving on a board or simply being active in your community. Um, the, the, the cumulative impact of a single individual in a small town is exponentially greater than if you're in a big place. And if that's important to you, if you, if you are value the ability to impact the lives of others or make a difference, um, why wouldn't you wanna be in a small town? There are so many ways that, that somebody who lives in a small town or a rural place, an unincorporated area, uh, to just change the whole dynamic of, of, of where they live and what happens. Again, I'm going to fall back on my own experience here. I love Bill's comments that people in small towns can make a big difference. I think of my friends and family in small towns. They're on the school board, volunteer firefighters, serving on community boards, planning community festivals, driving the school bus. They have real ownership of and responsibility to their communities. Um, I've been doing a lot of work uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks to develop a strategic plan for our county's economic development future in a post-COVID world. One of the things we know is that a lot of businesses um, that are struggling right now may not survive. Um, 
And then the question becomes, well, what are we going to do with all those empty storefronts on Main Street? Uh, and my question is, well, somebody is going to jump at an opportunity to be entrepreneurial, to find a new opportunity, to do something in a great space that otherwise they might not have had that chance. So I think one of the challenges of being in a small town is that you wear lots of different hats. Um, at the same time, wearing lots of different hats introduces you to lots of different people. The, the people who have the, the abilities and the desires to lead need to step up and lead. And whether that means running for office or simply volunteering to do things, it, it's all about the willingness of citizens to participate in the development of their community. You know, uh, there are a lot of people who, who think that the best thing that could happen in a small town is for it to go back to 1955. Because back then, the, down, the main street was full, you know, everyone was downtown on Friday night, things were better back then. That is true. Um, it, it's nothing we can recapture. So then the question becomes, how do we move forward? How do we create new opportunities and bring new businesses and find entrepreneurs and recruit families and create a quality of life that, you know, gets us maybe back to the point where we have vibrant downtowns but it doesn't look like it did in 1955. It looks like it's gonna look in 2025. That's the big challenge. And for, for small towns to also think about who is it coming up? What young person or young people or people that aren't from our town have the ability to play important roles in that too. And sometimes that means opening up the leadership circles to folks you never thought would be leaders. Um, but they're, they bring talents and skills and insights and different perspectives. In a homogenous small town, there's value in that sort of diversity. So these are the sorts of things that get me excited when people take their energy that they have about their community and invest it in new and big ways um, and, and change things. And that, to me, sends a message to visitors or to folks looking at coming and living there or working there, that this is a really good place to be. It goes back to that question about how much impact can you have? Well, you know, in a small town, you can make all the impact you want. On the flip side of this argument is simply that there are fewer people to do the work. The biggest threat to rural communities is a lack of capacity. Um, when you have um, a smaller number of individuals helping to to make change, to drive innovation, to, to make things happen. Um, uh, they, whether for age or health or other reasons, when they leave, that leaves huge gaps. Um, or you have places that don't have those sorts of people who are willing or able to step up and there's a void there in the ability to do things. What, what happens in a lot of very small towns is uh, when ideas get developed, um, they often look to the city clerk to make it happen because that city clerk is often the only paid person or one of a few paid people at the city level to actually make policies reality. There's a volunteer mayor and a volunteer city council and a volunteer chamber of commerce maybe, but it's always it always seems to land in the lap of that, that city clerk uh, to, to drive some of these changes. And some city clerks are, are, are able to do that, some are not. 
um, and, and the capacity that exists in these places can be limiting. At the same time, there are really small towns doing amazing things. And it's because they have a core of people, um, old, young, male, female, otherwise, who are doing things because they want them to happen. So uh, the biggest challenges you see from small town to small town is the existing leadership base and their ability to get things done. That's the biggest challenge. And these places that don't have the leaders, don't have the capacity, they could be sunk unless somebody steps in and says, I'm going to make this happen. We often hear about brain drain, this idea that kids grow up, get degrees, and leave. I asked Bill what his thoughts are on keeping young people in small towns. First off, I'm the father of four. None of my kids live in Iowa currently. None of them live in a rural place. Um, but I don't think that precludes them from coming back. I think want uh, and have the opportunity are, are two different things. I think there's nothing, I think young people who grow up in rural Iowa, you know, make choices on where they choose to go for a lot of different reasons. Some feel like they need to get away to a big city for a while just to experience a big city. Um, but when it comes time to have a, a family or to settle down, they're more comfortable in a rural place. Um, for young people who have a, a job choice where the only options for that sort of a career are in an urban area, um, that can be a limiting factor on their ability to stay in a small town. If they really want a Starbucks on every corner, they're not going to find one in a small town. And if that's driving what they want to do, or if they want to go to live theater every night or do any number of things that you associate with living in an urban area, then they're probably, you know, ready to go to those, those big cities. Um, but I'm not convinced that every young person is ready to flee. Uh, I do know that when you grow up in a small town, um, you're ready to see different things and experience different things. And that's okay. Uh, my hope is that my, if my kids want to come home to Iowa and live in a small town someday, that they can do that. And that there are jobs that, that they will find fulfilling and that their career paths take them toward that they can find. Um, or if that job, for example, is in Des Moines or Iowa City or Cedar Rapids, that they have great opportunities or can find places and um, fulfilling places to live nearby. I mean, when you draw those geographic circles around some of our major metropolitan areas, there are folks who choose to live within 20 miles in a suburb or in the city itself, and some who are choosing to live in the, um, the more rural areas. They call them micropolitan. In my mind, it, it's, they're small towns. If, we, if you want to live in Williamsburg, Iowa and commute to Iowa City, it's a piece of cake. If you want to live in Oxford, Iowa or Hills, Iowa and commute to Iowa City, th that's great. You'll have a different life experience and you're still within 20 minutes of the big city. This is something that in economic development circles, this comes up all the time. Oh, where's, where's gnashing of teeth? We're losing our young people. What are we going to do? We got to keep our young people. You know, I don't want to keep anybody who doesn't want to be here. And I also want them to go have some great life experiences. And if that means moving to Chicago for a few years and, and experiencing new things and making new friends and meeting your, your life partner there and then coming back, so much the better. I think it enriches our small towns. 
A few minutes ago, Emily talked about challenges with internet access. I asked almost everyone I talked with for this series what the biggest threat to their communities are. Almost every person said reliable access to internet, including Bill. And it was related to this question about people leaving and job opportunities for people who want to live in small communities. If you're a small town with a big pipe, and that's what they call your connectivity, a big stinking internet connection, a gigabit or more, you can work from anywhere. And if you're a small town that has that asset, you ought to be out waving flags right now telling people, I'm a, we're a gigabit city. Come live in our community because we have high-speed broadband, we have low housing prices, great quality of life, and you can make a difference here. The challenge of internet speed isn't only for people who live 10 miles outside of town. We were in a DSL system. Everybody in our neighborhood was also using that DSL, and our speed was under one megabit per second, which is horrific, and it would be impossible to do a Zoom meeting, uh, let alone two or three in the same household. And I basically had to call the phone company and say, uh, get rid of it. I, I can't use this. It's not worth it. And their response was, you know, we just put a brand new fiber optic node in the alley behind your house. Can we run fiber optics to your house? And the answer was, well, sure. And now suddenly I go from one megabit per second to 300. And the transformation was unbelievable. That, I mean, when we talk about haves and have nots in, when it comes to rural economies and urban economies or the U.S. versus other countries, the biggest have and have not moving forward from a global economy perspective is going to be, do you have high-speed broadband? And, and really, that means do you have a fiber optic line that comes to your home? Because everything else pales to that. In small towns, there are 135 rural telephone cooperatives in Iowa, a remarkable number, the most in, by, in any state by at least two times. And they have been investing in fiber optics for decades now. So they've been building out their networks. And now they're starting to go places where the incumbent providers, the investor-owned companies, don't want to go. And it's making a huge difference for those individuals in those places that they choose to serve. That's why this whole question about broadband and who's going to pay for it and should there be a level playing field, the answer is yes. And it was only it was during the New Deal that the federal government stepped up and said, if the electric companies aren't going to serve rural communities, we're going to pay for someone to do it because everybody should have electricity. Then they said the same thing about telephone and the same thing it should apply to broadband today. We had someone speak at, a, at our Rural Health Association meeting this week, a futurist from the New York Times. And he said that the one thing COVID has done has, has been to demonstrate to everyone that high-speed broadband is as essential as electricity and clean water. So a, a basic necessity of life for people, regardless of where they live, regardless of what they make, they have to have electricity, clean water, I would say clean air, place to live, but it's, it's an essential. And, and I don't know that we are treating it in many places like what it is, which is an essential public utility. If you listened to last week's episode and heard Art Cohen talk about how valuable local ownership of business is, Bill's comments here make a lot of sense. The local co-ops have been investing in the needs of their communities for years, 
in a way that large companies are still not. In 2020, we've seen just how important internet access is. Many of us are going on 10 months of working from home. Kids have been in and out of virtual schooling. Whether or not someone can get high-speed internet is directly tied to whether they can do their job. Bill says workforce is the number one issue in many small towns. And just as our other guests are bringing in all sorts of connections to the conversation, Bill does as well. In public health, we talk about health in all policies. Just about everything impacts our health, and our health impacts just about everything. We know everything is connected. We can't pull out one issue and solve it without understanding what's going on around it. And that issue of how do we recruit or retain our workforce is one of the number one challenges in small towns right now. Everybody will tell you workforce is their problem. Uh, How do we keep them? How do we get them? And then that takes us back to the conversation about broadband and housing and the arts and childcare and quality of life. These are all factors that influence the livability of a place. So if I'm an employer, I have to be thinking about those other things that impact the workforce. And that's why um, we're sort of reaching an all hands on deck situation where everybody has to be involved in conversations about housing development and childcare and healthcare and education. I mean, these are all amenities that, that small towns need to be successful. And if they don't have them, they will pay in lost workers or a smaller workforce. Health and healthcare are, are big deals. And if you're in a community where people don't have a place to live, where they don't have access to food, where they're not making a living wage, where the environment or the transportation network is substandard, that's going to impact their overall health. You know, and then the next question is, well, if their overall health is affected, do they even have access to health care? So that that intersect, it's, it's an interesting intersection of health, health care. And then coming from the top are all these these social determinants, these economic development factors that I think most economic developers don't realize that everything they do has a health outcome attached to it. But but in fact, when they're working on housing or creating new job opportunities or a downtown, you know, arts center, they're all, everything's related. I always like to tell hospital CEOs that they're an anchor industry in their community and they should act like it, which means they have to be leaders when it comes to economic development uh, and community development issues. They can't just lock themselves in the C-suite and worry only about their hospital. They have to get involved with the entire community because of the health implications that are involved in that. Bill says hospitals are economic drivers and major employers in communities. So I asked what other employers are out there. There are jobs in rural communities. In fact, there are more jobs than we have people for right now. Uh, They're not all low wage. Um, And more importantly, I mean, manufacturing is the state's biggest industry. Some of that manufacturing is related to agricultural and agricultural implements, but for the most part, it's not. So while agriculture is a really important industry in our state, many of the jobs in rural Iowa have nothing to do with agriculture, even though many of the people who are working there or who are living there may have come from families that were from family farms or grew up in small towns and walked beans and you know did the stuff that you do when you grow up in a, in a rural state like this. 
but but I think the misconception is that if you come to Iowa, you're going to be you know shucking corn, and that clearly is not the case. Um, and there's also an assumption that everything is blue collar when this is a, a state that's driven by technology, um, the service industry, finances, um, and we need people with those sorts of skill sets to fill those jobs. And then, of course, we have the ag adjacent industries. That is, that's agriculture related, but it's, it's value added. Now, that's a different, a whole different story is how, what sort of innovation happens in our state because of the proximity of the crops, the, the livestock that drives future processing opportunities and adds value to those products beyond what you would get simply by growing them. Now that's an exciting opportunity and, and it's constantly changing. And whether it's a processing plant um, or a plant that, that extrudes you know, tiny pieces of a, a, a corn kernel and does amazing new things like the things that, that Kemen does in Des Moines with their research, um, I mean, there, there are elements of this in our state, but again, we're, we're a, a state that, that although we are a farm state, everything that is driven in rural Iowa is not necessarily ag-related. I mean, when we talk about the impact of agriculture on our state's economy, there are, is a growing number of people who have no clue. Even if you grow up in Mount Vernon and you have no, in, you would think at least by you know, osmosis, You'd figure out corn and beans and, you know, what Stover is. And there are lots of people who don't, lots of young people who don't. And frankly, it's farmers who need to be telling those stories because it's in their best interests. We're going to wrap up today's conversation talking about Manning, an impressive town in western Iowa. I always talk about Manning, Iowa, which is a town of about 1,500 people in the middle of Carroll County. Not far from the city of Carroll, which is one of those you know cities of ten thousand that's more of a regional hub, but you've got little Manning there, not all far away also is Templeton, the home of Templeton Rye. And um, the leadership in Manning started to change maybe ten years ago or so, and folks started to do things and they started to reinvent their main street and they built a new hospital and developed a spirit of entrepreneurship, refurbished a historic old German barn. Uh, and a few years ago, they were named the Small Business Administration's Small Business City of the Year, beating out Sioux City, Dubuque, and Cedar Rapids. Manning, Iowa did this. And it was because it was some elected officials, they developed a Main Street program, and people rallied around what they were going to become. And they are a remarkable small town. Again, 1,500 people. And when I look at what Manning has done, driven by local leadership and a local vision, I'm convinced anybody can do it with the right pieces in place and with the capacity to make those things happen. So you can't just say, oh, well, small towns don't have the capacity. They don't have enough people. They can, as long as they have the right people doing the right things and working together. Again, I just get back to the fact that, that the, the future of many small towns is going to be determined by the people who live there or the people that come there. And, and the idea that you can make a difference in your community is absolutely true, more so in small towns than in big cities. But, but it takes a little bit of courage 
It takes the willingness to step out and put yourself at risk by actually being active and by stepping forward and saying, I'll volunteer, I'll lead. And for some people, that's not, that's not something they're comfortable with, but if they can get over that discomfort, knowing that there are these great assets they're bringing to the table, then um, you know, the impact they're gonna have on the community, on their families' lives, on the lives of their neighbors and their friends um, really will be impactful. I'm Hannah Schultz. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Share Public Health. Please join us again next week as we talk about food systems. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John. It's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. Al learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.